Welcome along everyone to another of Shared Ireland's podcast. Today we'll be having a conversation with a journalist. He's also an ex-victims commissioner. He used to be presenting the 6 o'clock news. He's an ex-party leader of the UUP and current MLA for Strangford. Welcome along, Mike Nesbitt. Thank you very much. Good to um, have you here today, Mike, because I appreciate that you're a busy man. You're over at the talks in Stormont, so um, I suppose, how are they getting on? Well, it's, it's difficult to say because, as um, as Richard Haas told us uh, in this very venue where we're, where we're speaking to each other today, the only important day in the negotiation is the last day. Yeah, true. Uh, and I'm not even sure where we're into negotiations at the moment, but we're talking, and we're talking a lot. There are a lot of meetings going on in the various strands and the thing that is encouraging me is that the the tone and the atmosphere is pretty positive and what I'm wondering is whether particularly for the two big parties uh, they have now determined that they really need to do a deal and that may be out of self-interest which isn't the, the most noble of motivations but I'll take it as long as it gets the job done. If, if it gets people back round the table, I would certainly take that, particularly in the hope that once they're round the table, they will start building the relationships, which will be the absolutely essential foundation to survive the next shockwave wherever it comes. And because it's politics, there will be a shockwave mm-hmm, coming along down the road. But if you have a relationship where you can say to your partners in government, uh, this shockwave is going to give me a problem, can you give me a hand out? Uh, and then vice versa, and you build on that. And I suppose that's where a good working relationship helps. And I suppose maybe that's where Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley, God rest them both, had that relationship where they maybe could say that to each other behind the scenes. But I yeah. think in this case, that relationship unfortunately isn't there. Well, I think I think the McGuinness-Paisley relationship is it fascinates me. Because if you take it that the, the relationship between the First and the Deputy First Minister is the kind of totemic, the symbolic mm-hmm. test yeah. of what the whole agreement of 1998 was about, which was about sharing, yeah. building mutual trust, showing mutual respect. Yeah. Then over the 21 years since that agreement, there's only been one year where that relationship between FM and DFM has worked as intended. And that was between Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it works so well, of course, people call them the Chuckle Brothers. But yeah. I tell you what, I meet a lot of people who are genuinely nostalgic for the Chuckle Brothers. Absolutely. They would like to see whoever's first and deputy first ministers uh, doing what uh, Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness did. Just sticking with this theme for a wee minute, Mike, do you think Arlene and Michelle have it within themselves? to be a version of, maybe not the Chuckle Brothers, but a softer version of it? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be asking them to, to replicate the Chuckle Brothers, but it's the spirit of the cooperation uh, and of building the relationship. And I think everybody has it within themselves. Uh, and I think the other important thing about it, by the way, is if, if I said to you, what did the Chuckle Brothers, what did Paisley and McGuinness do for the education system of Northern Ireland or for the health service or for the infrastructure? I don't think you'd be able to answer me, would you? Yeah, I know what you're saying. The point being, that's not the point. The point was the relationships, and this is all about relationships. I'll ask you the same question, only put a different word. Do you think, then, is a desire there? I hope the desire is there. Um, 
I, I have seen instances in the past where I have been very disappointed uh, at the clear lack of a relationship uh, and, and the almost public dismissal uh, of feeling any obligation to try and build that relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I do believe that beyond everything else in the agreement which set up institutions, north-south bodies and east-west bodies, if you don't have the relationships right up the hill at Stormont, you're not giving the example and you're not building that foundation that I talked about. And therefore, everything else is built on sand. Yeah. And it doesn't honour the spirit. It doesn't honour the spirit of, of what was agreed back in 98. Go to the first page of the Good Friday Agreement and what do you read? A declaration of support that says we're going to take an opportunity to build new relations, we're going to base them on tolerance, reconciliation, trust and respect. Yeah. And you can't, I can't move off that. Mm -hmm. We have to do all that. And if we do all that, everything else is easy, mm -hmm. relatively speaking. Do you think in these current round of talks that the Alliance's recent surge in votes, um, do you think they will have a, a bigger role in the talks and do you think their, I suppose, input will be, I suppose, taken more seriously? Well, the interesting thing about the Alliance Party is, is yes, they, they are being congratulated and recognised for their electoral successes, which were phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And I put on record my congratulations, uh, both at local government and at a European level. Uh, and yes, they're being treated uh, as, as one of the five parties uh, who could form the government. But actually on their last assembly showing, they're not entitled to be in the executive. So they would need to be invited in and the only ministry they could have is justice, uh, which was the case a couple of yeah, uh, but executives I, ago. I suppose that the whole thinking would be if there was an assembly election <clears throat> three weeks ago, instead of a, a local election, they certainly would be entitled then. Well, uh, you, you cannot read across necessarily no. the success of those two against Assembly. I mean, look, look, when I was leading the Ulster Unionist Party, we did very well at local government. We retained our European seat. We got back into Westminster, not, not with one but two MPs. But when it came to the Assembly elections, we couldn't replicate that success. No. So just with that proviso, yeah, okay. I, I still say if I was in the Alliance Party, I'd be very tempted to say, and, and suppose, let's have an Assembly election. Of course, and I suppose then Naomi getting elected as an MEP mm. had a positive bounce for them as well. Yeah, I'm only saying that, that the law is that mm -hmm. at the moment mm -hmm. they, they don't have enough MLAs to uh, command a seat at the executive table. Mm -hmm. And so the only ministry that would be available to them is the one that doesn't run under the haunt, mm -hmm. which is justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, I, I'm absolutely convinced that the EU and Sinn Féin want all five parties around the table this time. They were, to my mind, extremely uncomfortable with an opposition. And if you analyse it, uh, we, we went into opposition uh, after the, the election. We then had a summer recess. And then within two to three months of coming back, leaving the DUP and Sinn Féin staring at each other across the, the executive table, mm -hmm. it was clear it was about to collapse. Mm -hmm. So election in May 16, and it was all in ruins by, by January 17. Mm -hmm. So if you ask me, was, was opposition successful? I would say it was too successful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you mentioned there the, the five main parties. I recently uh, done an interview with Claire Bailey, which you know well leader of the Green Party here, and Claire, to my amazement and shock, uh, said that she and the Green Party weren't involved in these talks. Now, I appreciate I don't know how 
talks work, but I just would have assumed the leader of a party with a, having an office and a staff in Stormont would have been in the talks, but she said she was reliant on other parties, keeping her up to date on how the talks were going. And I just, and our listeners I know, found that very strange. Well, that has been, that has been the tradition. Uh, and I think the main reason is that whether the five parties who are in these talks have uh, as of right uh, the ability to sit around the executive table or where, as in the Lance's case at the moment, they need to be invited to take justice. Mm-hmm. It involves the five parties who may form the next executive. Mm-hmm. The Greens with two MLAs will not form part of the next executive. That said, uh, I, I believe in, in consulting as widely as possible, getting as big a consensus as possible. Mm-hmm. So I welcome the fact that Claire was involved in the discussions about the implementation of the Historical Institutional Abuse Inquiry recommendations, yeah. or the recommendations as we have now, as six parties, amended them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tell me this, coming from, I suppose, your background, Mike, and having a unique perspective on talking to people that's in the know, has unionism, do you think, have they took some comfort, I suppose, it's maybe the wrong word, but in the fact that Sinn Féin lost so many seats in the recent local elections in the South? I, I, I don't take any joy in, in as what, what is happening to them. Um, the, the interesting thing to me, first of all, was I was speaking to a very senior former politician uh, from Dáil Éireann about six weeks out from those elections, mm-hmm. and he predicted it. He called it. He said he, he they're going to lose about half of their local government seats and they're going to take a hit in Europe. Right. And he was, he was absolutely... He doesn't, he doesn't do the lotto numbers as well, Well, I did ask, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think um, some people saw it coming. I don't know if Sinn Féin saw it coming and I don't know how they've analysed it. But it, it's perfectly feasible that their analysis is not being back in Stormont. Is, is doing us severe damage or significant damage. So that should be a help in these current storm and talks, you think? Well, it should be because uh, ultimately uh, you need, if you're the DUP of Sinn Féin, in my analysis anyway, I think, I think you, need, you need a motivation which is kind of self-interest. Mm-hmm. And if not being in Stormont and perhaps being at least partially blamed for the blockage, is costing you electorally, then there's the self-interest to get you back in. And while self-interest isn't the, the, the greatest motivation, perhaps, and the purest motivation yep. for getting back into Stormont, whatever gets the parties back around the table, I will take, uh, in the hope that once they're there, they'll start building the relationships up. Okay. Daniels, what is required to create a truly shared Ireland? Now, we in shared Ireland thought long and hard before we I suppose went public with her name and I suppose I have my idea you'll have yours so mm-hmm. well I wouldn't first of all fixate on the border yeah but I will go back to when the border was created and offer you a sort of an analysis of what the, the two jurisdictions were like because Eamon de Valera of course famously said that the Republic or era uh, was a Catholic country Catholic state for Catholic people uh-huh. Uh, and 
I suppose almost by response or retaliation, whatever you want to call it, James Craig, Lord Craig Avon, our first Prime Minister in Northern Ireland, said, well, Stormont is a Protestant parliament for a Protestant state. Glenn Bradley, um, with a joint interview with Danny Morrison last week, said something similar. Only I think he used more colourful language. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah. your point is... So the, the, there are two accurate quotes. You know, If that's what you want and you've got the support of your voters fine but it's not exactly a shared future no uh, and it's not what I would be about no. but that was a hundred years ago now if we come forward to last year and think about the Pope's visit to Dublin mm-hmm. there you have Tisha Faradkar effectively saying your holiness you're really really welcome and, and I'm genuinely pleased you're here mm-hmm. but don't be touching anything because it's not yours anymore on your way <laughs> we are we are a pluralist people yeah. we're not a Catholic state yeah uh, and I thought that was mm-hmm. absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And the question becomes, have we got to that position here in Northern Ireland? And the answer is, no, we haven't. But I tell you, w- w- the position we have got to, nobody owns Northern Ireland anymore. No faction does. Unionism used to, certainly political. You could have an election a week, and the unionists were always going to win. But the numbers have changed. And unionism doesn't own Northern Ireland, Republicans don't, nationalists don't, loyalists don't, and people who call themselves others don't. Mm-hmm. But none of us is going away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can get cryogenically frozen and come back in 5, 15 or 50 years. <coughs> but the makeup will still be the same. The numbers and the proportions will be different. So are we going to recognise nobody's going away, nobody owns, and therefore... We have to share. You've mentioned nobody's gone away twice there. Um, there was um, a current leader of a unionist party, Matt Datlongo, said that they would actually move away if, ah, the, if yes. the inevitable yeah. happened. But you're definitely putting it right that you won't be moving away. I, I, will, I will not be moving away. Uh, I, my, my dear wife has me painting and decorating every summer. Very and good. I have no, I'm just too, I'm too much invested in this place. I mean, I was one of the, I suppose, the minority in the 70s who after school went to uni mm-hmm. across the water in England and came back. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember ever hesitating about wanting to come back. And I've, I've basically been here Home's ever home. since. And home, yeah, home is home. And and if the constitutional arrangements uh, change, so be it. Yeah. But actually, I want to be part of that debate. Uh, don't don't be asking me to be a persuader no. for some sort of Irish unity, because yeah. I'm a unionist. Of so course. my job is trying to persuade people you're better off in the exactly. union. Exactly. But if you're not trying to bomb or shoot me into a new constitutional arrangement, you'll talk to me. I'm listening. Yes, very good. And I suppose another question here, but seeing that you're talked about that one, why should Irish nationalists vote to stay within the UK if there was going to be a border poll? You know, I'll give you that opportunity to try and convince our listeners why it's we should maintain the union. Well, the first issue is the money. And, and I do believe that a lot of politics and a lot of constitutional change and settlements are, are based around people making the decision about where am I best off financially. Uh, and you know, there, there are all sorts of debates now, and I know those who want to promote constitutional change are, are questioning the kind of traditional beliefs and, and, uh, and, and statements about 
how much money we are getting out of the Treasury in London. Certainly. So, and then when you when you lob in the 350 million a week for the health service as part of the Brexit campaign, uh -huh. I can understand how people are saying, well, you know, the, the, who, who do you believe? That's right. In terms, who do you believe of the money? But you need so you need to you need to decide that. I also believe in British values. But British values, I think, sometimes are different from the values that unionists, some unionists, espouse in Northern Ireland. And I am talking about things like uh, reproductive rights mm -hmm. and marriage equality. Yeah. Uh, because in England, Scotland, and Wales, it's different okay. from it here in Northern Ireland, and I don't think uh, it should be. It certainly shouldn't be as big a gap. Uh, so we have to talk about values. Uh, and you know, are we open? Are we pluralist? Are we inclusive? Do, do, do we celebrate diversity? Do you think um, the South has left us behind in that regard? I think in some regards they have. I mean, grow, growing up, you kind of knew you'd cross the border into the public because the roads got worse, and, and you were in a state which basically was, was governed by the Catholic Church. And now it's almost in reverse. You know, the roads are better. Uh, and you're into you know, a, a much more diverse... Multicultural society? Yeah, that, where there's a kind of greater sense of freedom. Mm. Mm. Uh, and and uh, I think it's great and it's absolutely remarkable the Republic has come so far so quickly. Yeah. It's utterly astonishing. Yeah. Uh, but I regret that Northern Ireland has not been able to, to match that pace of change. Have you anything else you would like to add? Why... Um nationalists should vote to maintain the union? Also because I think that the protections that were put into the, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement uh, are very important because you can be British, you can be Irish, you can be both, you can be what I am, which was the old John Hewitt notion of I'm an Ulsterman but I'm also Irish, British and European. Yeah. Uh, and the important thing about that was he warned that if you deny me any part of that, you diminish who I am, yeah. which is exactly what a lot of people think Brexit did. Mm -hmm. True. Particularly here in Northern Ireland, to Irish nationalists mm -hmm. living here. Uh, I met a couple uh, the day of the result, which was what, the 27th of June 2016. Mm -hmm. They were in their 30s, they were business people, and they said, you know, if you ask me, would I like to see United Ireland someday? Of course we would say yes. Uh, so we're aspirational or kind of notional nationalists. Mm -hmm. But if the second question is, would you join us and be an activist to bring it about? Yeah. They would say no. And the reason they would say no is they were too busy. Too busy earning good money, having their children very well educated, mm -hmm. and basically just enjoying life to be that bothered about whether the part of Ireland they were living on was considered British or Irish. Yeah. And part of that comfort was the assurance of the Good Friday Agreement with regard to their identity. Yeah. We all self-define. Nobody else does it for us. But in their assessment, what happened with Brexit was English nationalists came in over their heads, mm -hmm. did exactly what the agreement said couldn't happen, which was, I'm denying you part of your identity, your Europeanness. Yeah. And then as Hewitt warned, they're left feeling diminished. Yeah. And suddenly, I don't know if they went on to become activists, but they were certainly thinking about it back in June 16. Yeah. And if they didn't, I think quite a few people did. Mm -hmm. Good point. And the unionists who voted Brexit clearly were voting to change part of the United Kingdom's constitutional status. Mm -hmm. Now, they may have thought it was only that part of the constitutional status that linked us to the European Union. Yeah. But what they should have realised was they were endangering the constitutional status of the United Kingdom internally yeah. with Scotland, 
because if Scotland get a second referendum, it won't be in and out of the UK, it will be fought in and out of Europe. Absolutely. And I imagine we'll win that and yeah. therefore the UK falls. Absolutely. And at that point... And the Union falls. Well, yes, there isn't a United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern no. Ireland. And at that point, uh, do English nationalists look at Northern Ireland and say, hold on a second, you're getting over 10, 10, 12 billion a year. Half of you don't even want to be part of the Union. And yet and all in Manchester and London, our hospitals need maintenance and our roads need and our education well, system. 12, 12 billion a year, that's a lot of bobbies on the beat. That's a lot of nurses, consultants. That's a lot of infrastructure. You're, you're nearly putting my case now why we should leave instead of why we should stay, Mick. <laughs> well, I'm... I'm, uh, I'm <coughs> but keep what, going. What, <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm saying is unionism can't put their head in the sand about this. There, there's a famous story about a South, South American frog. And the thing, characteristic with this frog is if you put it in a pan of cold water and slowly heat it up, now, I mean really slowly, the frog doesn't jump and it dies, it boils to death. It's a gradual process. Because it doesn't realise the environment around it is changing in a way that's an existential threat. Mm -hmm. now, unionism are in danger of being the frog because the environment's changing. Brexit has changed everything, utterly. The demographics are changing. Scottish nationalists are a threat to the Union. I would argue English nationalists are a threat to the Union. I would argue at times the DUP in some of their stances and their don't tone. Have me, don't have me going to come out with their attention, do <laughs> no, no, but they sometimes, I think, pose a long-term threat to the Union because sometimes I think some of some of what they do, some of their strategy is very short term. You know, great and congratulations to them. You get a billion pounds in that confidence and supply arrangement. <clears throat> if we even if we get all of it, and that's open whether that will all be spent. But what is the long term impact in terms of how the people of England think of us? And remember, it was basically the people of England who said we're coming out of the European Union. Yeah. So they're, right. they're certainly the most powerful bloc within the United Kingdom. Yeah. So I think we, we just need to recognise how the environment is changing, react to it in a positive way that makes us better proponents of why it is good for everybody in this country to remain part of the UK. And maybe I have uh, perhaps articulated the downside too clearly. But but there's, no, there's no point hiding it. But maybe the downside's the most obvious side. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, maybe you, you don't know what you've got until you miss it. Hey, that's a very good phrase as well. But let me also put it this way, because I know that there are people who, who are who are very keen to get to the point where we have a border poll and think think we will win it. By the way, I think if it was a border poll this year, it would be lost. Of course it would be. If I was a, a union star in the DUP or anybody, I would demand one now. Yeah. I also think it'll be, it could, could be lost in the Republic. I have no confidence Tell that me. a majority of people in the Republic would vote. Tell me this now. I know it's only an exit poll. You know what I'm about to say here. Oh, yes. And the local elections the two in the thirds. South, uh, 77% of 3,000 people were asked the question, amongst other questions, yeah. would they vote for United Ireland now? And 77% 77% said yes. Which also, just as we follow up to that, would lead me to believe 
while Sinn Féin lost half their local councillors, but 77% of Southern elected said they'd vote for United Ireland. That kind of tells me then that Sinn Féin don't own the United Ireland argument. And the reason why I mention that, because some unionists would say that they do. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd make two comments on that. On, on your latter point about Sinn Féin owning it, I think for, for a lot of us unionists, that has been the major problem. The biggest obstacle to achieving a united Ireland in my lifetime was the IRA. Yeah. Because they were trying to bomb and shoot and coerce me into something I didn't want. Yeah. So you've got to kind of wash that out of the debate. And that includes making sure that unionists don't by word association associate a, a reunification with Sinn Féin's mm -hmm. vision of, of a reunification. Yeah. The other point about the, the, the exit poll is, you, you yes. remember there was a BBC RTE poll where they had a pretty high headline figure, uh, do you would like to see United Ireland? But then when they put in the cost, <laughs> the numbers who were for it dropped. And it gets you back to my point about notional or aspirational United Irelanders and actual United Irelanders. Yeah. I'm not surprised because I think that question coming out of a poll was, tra was trapping all the aspirational people. Yeah, And there were people that were actively voting five minutes before being exactly. asked that question. Now if you sit them down and you go through as we would need to do if there's going to be a border poll in infinite detail the implications including the costs I think that 77 percentage would, would drop through the floor you, at the moment. You hope that 77 percent. I'm confident. <laughs> I am confident. Before uh, we get off the subject, Mike, do you accept that 50 plus one would win the poll? No, not ideal. I accept. Yes. Because you would want to take the nation with you, regardless of who won the poll. But you do accept that 50 plus one is enough. I accept that 50 plus one is the number. It cannot be anything else. It has always been the number. Yeah. For example, uh, on the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, it was 50% plus one. In or out of Europe, it was 50% plus one. Yeah. In a democracy, it's 50% plus one of those who vote. If it was 50% plus one, it would be an utter disaster. Of course it would. Unimaginable yeah. disaster. And I think everybody accepts that and recognises that. Just on that, is it vital, do you think, then, in preparation for this, again, not just so it, it'll be won, but also to hear the negativities that there is an all-iron forum set up by whoever. Now, I'm not saying the Irish government should be chairing this because that could be seen for many unions as being, you know, a cold house maybe. Should it be done by Europe or should the Americans come in? Because I think what we have learned from Brexit. If you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. Yes. We need to hear all the good stuff and the bad stuff. And so people will have full knowledge of what they're going to actually vote for. I think the lesson of Brexit is that you cannot approach such a potentially significant constitutional change yeah. without a plan. Yeah. Uh, and again, I, because I'm not one arguing for the change, yes. I'm arguing for the status quo, yeah. it really falls to others to take the lead in trying to persuade me. Yeah, but if them others are going to be nationalists slash republicans, then it will be seen to be kind of, you know, them leading it. And again, that won't get buy-in from the unionist community, I'm afraid. Well, it, it, it will draw my attention. It mightn't get the full buy-in of the unionist community, but you can't expect the unionist community to say, 
We are going to go out to lobby for United Ireland. No, but I, what I would expect them to state. be, I would expect them to be want. In fact, I would expect them to be the first at the talks doors to put up a strong case why we should maintain the union. So I think it would be more important nearly for the unions to get in there. Well, I agree with you on that. And, and what I would say in my experience, and I'm going back to being a journalist, yeah. is that unionism's ability and desire and capacity to outreach is very, very weak. In fact, a, a former senior member of the US State Department and I had a chat when I was leading the Unionist Party. And we got to the point where I said, look, I'm not a career politician. Can we just talk straight? And he said, yeah, because I'm not a career diplomat. I'm a businessman. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what's wrong with unionism? Your PR's crap. <laughs> and I don't disagree. Uh, and I'll give you one example. A couple of months ago, there was an event at the Mansion House in Dublin, uh, and it was to mark the centenary of the first meeting of Doyle Aaron. Mm -hmm. Every MLA was invited from, from Northern Ireland. I went down into that room, say 350 people, and many unionist politicians. What? And was that one you? Yeah. And I went back down when Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of Congress, uh, gave an address. Again, the only unionist politician. Now, I think uh, Robin Swan went to a dinner that night, and I applaud him for doing it. But this isn't enough. Whether we're having constitutional change or not, we we'll have to give effect to the, to the fact we keep saying, you're our nearest neighbours and we want to have really good relations. Well, if you want to have really good relations, Shift your backside and, and start talking to people. Hmm. Start listening to people. Explain your case, listen to other people's cases. I'm not sure that there's a huge demand for a border pole across the island of Ireland. But what I do think there's a huge demand for is finding out a better way to rub along together across the two jurisdictions, the four provinces, whatever way you want to describe it. How, how do we get along a bit better? And how do we sweat that diversity? Does that not have to, that leadership, come from the leaders of their political parties to show that example, Mike? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not going to get hung up on, on, on what sort of uh, structure you put in place, whether it's you know, like a New Ireland Forum too or, or whatever. But no, I, I do believe unionism's fault line is saying, oh, we're not going to go to that, or we're not going to go to that, we're not going to address those people. One of the, one of the uh, I think, most significant things in a way, you know, maybe not significant, that's maybe not the right word, actually one of the most fun things I've done in the last year was a debate which I only agreed to do because of the venue. It was Cross McGlenn. Okay. So was I the first elected unionist to sit on a political panel in Cross McGlenn? And the answer I'm assuming is yes, you were. Well, I, I don't know, but the fact that you turn up yeah. uh, means for simply nobody's going to attack you. You know, They're, they're no. not going to attack your views because you've turned up to give them. Absolutely. Um, so it's, in a way, you know, a room full of 100 Republicans across McGann is the easiest audience true. a unionist will ever come across. That's absolutely true. Yeah. 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 In fact... There was, there was a member of Sinn Féin on the panel and they were getting, I thought, increasingly cross because all the questions were coming to me because they knew exactly what the Sinn Féin member thought. Exactly right. And they could access them any day, any night. A hundred percent. But I had turned up 
Yeah. And I think we need we need more of that. And, and to be honest with you, from from our point here in a shared Ireland, that's why having conversations with you, Mike, Doug Beatty, Alex Kane, people of that ilk, that is more important to us than speaking to Michelle O'Neill. With all due respect to Michelle, because every nationalist knows basically yes. what Michelle's going to say. Just um, you mentioned there, you went to Dublin. Have you um, a working relationship, or are you friends with Ian Marshall? Uh, which, which, just in case anybody does know who he is, he's an independent senator in Dáilair. Yeah, caused a little bit of a fuss because he's from the unionist community. He was president of the Ulster Farmers Union. Ex-president of the uh, Ulster Farmers Union. And he accepted a, a position in, in the Senate. Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as friendly, but we've spoken. And um, I fully support him. Uh, in taking that position. And he comes across as a very moderate sort of a man with the type of thinking I think is we, we need more of. Yeah. And and why wouldn't you have a unionist voice in Leinster House? That's exactly what I'm talking about. We we need to be putting ourselves forward because nobody else is going to put unionism's case for them. I mean, I go I go back to was it ninety ninety four? The the famous two days when Bill Clinton gave Jerry Adams his visa mm-hmm. for his first visit to America. And it was a conference on Northern Ireland organised by the American Committee on American Foreign Policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like Bill Flynn, these were Irish-Americans, incredibly wealthy Irish-Americans, but they had an interest yeah. in trying to bring about peace. Yeah. Jim Molyneux, the unionist leader of the day, had agreed to go. Ian Paisley had agreed to go. John Alderdice and John Hume had their tickets. I think I know what's coming here. And when... when no, 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 no. <laughs> There's only, only the two unionists right. withdrew when Jerry Adams got the visa. Yeah. Now, I'm going to make a distinction here between sharing a platform at the conference with Jerry Adams, which I understand the two unionist leaders could not have done mm-hmm. at that time because yeah. the IRA were still fully active and their bases would not have permitted it. But the distinction I'm making between that is with cancelling their flights. Why didn't they fly out to New York? Why didn't they hold their own event before the conference? Sell, sell their message. The media would have piled in and they could have said, when you're across the road, ask them about Gene McConville and the disappeared. Ask them about Bloody Friday, never mind Bloody Sunday. Ask them about Le Mans, because you guys know all about Napalm from Vietnam. It's easy. And the media would have listened, and you, know, they, you mightn't have been able to totally shape the agenda, but at least you would have had your say. And I suppose that goes back to what you alluded to five minutes ago, unionism doesn't do PR. Exactly. Mm. Certainly doesn't do it well. And then, you know, the, the kind of irony is that they, they don't turn up, <laughs> nobody puts the union's case, but then they complain the White House has turned Republican green. green. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> let me tell you, in life... It's the human condition. If you only hear one side of a story, you are tending, you are going to tend to yeah. shade your your support, your yeah. sympathy to that side of the story. Very true. But you'll also be curious to hear the other side. Mm-hmm. So yeah. take the opportunity. Tell me this, Mike. What can we, the ordinary working man and woman, do, if anything, to help bring our communities together? Given this issue has not been properly dealt with, I suppose, uh, in the peace process. Is there anything we can do? Well, I think there is a role for civic society and, and I, I welcome the fact that we've seen civic society groupings and events. 
Uh, I look at the the Waterfront Hall event where 1,600 nationalists came together. Correct. And seemed to come out presenting United Front. Whether that truly reflects the position isn't actually the point. The point I would make is that unionism cannot do that. Do you honestly believe that? I know it because to a certain extent I tried it politically when Peter Robinson was leading the DUP and we went for that unionist forum. And Peter called it the most representative grouping of unionism ever in the history of Northern Ireland. But there were people in the room who were there to ensure it failed. And that's certainly the nature of unionism and I don't think we are unique in that sense. So I think if you tried to put 1,600 unionists in the Waterfront Hall, it, it would fall apart. I don't think we could stay in there for a couple of hours and come out presenting a united front to the media. I think we're just a different, a different beast. But I'm glad there's civic unionism. I'm glad there's civic nationalism. But what I want to see is civic society. I need the two to come together mm-hmm. and start talking. What, what I would like to do, because I addressed a, 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 an SDLP a grouping in South Belfast last week, and we were just talking about how we re-energise, and I said, well, look, everybody knows you're a nationalist party. Everybody knows we're a unionist party. We don't really need to go out and sell that. We can, in fact, we can take it as red. I don't know about that. But, but, but mm. what, what if we were knocking doors and people were saying not, oh, you're the unionists, you're the nationalists. What if they were saying, oh, you're the guys who do mental health? Yeah, that's a very good point. What if you're, the, oh, yeah, you're the guys who do prosperity? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what I mean. Why can't we make the constitutional position almost kind of second level to this is what we campaign on? And that's what I was trying to do with Colm uh, a couple of years ago. Oh, Colm, you get Meg. Well, you know, every time I knock the door, you know, the DUP go around and say, vote Mike and you get Martin, the late Martin McGuinness. Because you split the union's vote. That's right. Vote Mike, you get you get Martin. So I said, well, it doesn't have to be like that. If you vote for the SDP and the LCU's party, you're voting Colin, you're getting Mike, you're voting Mike, you're getting Colin. You're Listen, getting different. I, genuinely, I, I think this conversation is fascinating and I would love to sit here for three hours, but I appreciate you are under time constraints to get back across the road to help um, knock a few heads together. Well, so, I wouldn't go that far. But <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, I would like to just uh, touch on how can we solve the victims issue, Mike? Given that you used to be an ex-victims commissioner, mm-hmm. and um, I suppose you know, can we move forward as a society until we solve the past? Or what's your take on? I don't think we can move forward unless we address the past. I don't think we can solve the past um, because that would that would require an agreed narrative, and I don't see that coming. But I've seen it from the perspective of a victims commissioner and I've seen it from the perspective of a political leader. And politically, we tend to look on the past in a very narrow focus of truth, justice and possibly acknowledgement. Yes. As a victims commissioner, you get a much broader sense of the issues facing victims and survivors and their children and their grandchildren and today their great-grandchildren. 
and a lot of these issues go down generation by generation. And the problem is, Mike, generations are dying off. Yes, well, the, the original, yes. Is, is, is that, some people would have a sneaky suspicion that that's nearly the hope. No, a lot, a lot of victims would say, you politicians just want us to go away, fade away, pass away, and the problem's solved. But it, it won't be solved. No. Because it does go down into generation. But the, the issues they have are not just truth and justice. Mental health is absolutely massive. Absolutely. There's hundreds severely injured, uh, and their pain gets worse. Plus, their injuries prevented them working. So although they got compensation, they weren't able to work, they weren't able to save, they weren't able to contribute to a pension. Uh, there were huge lost opportunities in education as well as in employment. Huge lost opportunities in social inclusion and in family life. Now, some of these things we can actually tackle. And the Victims Commission uh, have done uh, a comprehensive assessment of the needs. And you can find on their website the league table mm -hmm. in rank order. Uh, and Truth and Justice doesn't even make the podium. It's not in the top three. Now, I accept two things. If truth and justice is what you really want, then it is all-consuming, and it may also contribute to your poor mental health. So there are concentric circles here. There's a sort of Venn diagram. I'm not mm -hmm. saying they're exclusive. Uh, but if you transfer that into the political field, you could make an argument that we are trying to deal only with the single most difficult part of the past, and actually, if we broadened it out and we did something big on mental health, we would help a lot of victims and survivors. And they would know it, and society would know it, and maybe that would change the dynamic and give us a bit more confidence about saying, OK, well, let's take the next bite out of the elephant, because we're now on a roll. We know we can fix things. So we might be able to approach the truth and justice piece from a different paradigm with more confidence more belief and more backing. But I guess if that was the case that some people would think you're trying to maybe steer things away from the real issue and as you rightfully said the real issue is we want acknowledgement. Yes well that's what I want to come on to because beyond the truth and justice of the specifics incident by incident death by death injury by injury yeah I think the most important thing is acknowledgement. And what I used to propose when I was leader at Haas O'Sullivan Stormont House was that the five local party leaders, the Taoiseach, the Prime Minister and the American administration stand shoulder to shoulder at the beginning of a process. Once we've agreed what we're going to do to deal with the past, we start by making acknowledgement statements. So I would have been prepared to say, well look, my party ran the country for the first 51 years, consecutive. No, no government can go one five-year mandate without getting it wrong, either deliberately or by accident, or indeed you know, even through you know, sheer bloody will to do it wrong. Yeah. We, we did 51. We know your face. And You've got an admirer, Mike. <laughs> You know, so I would be prepared to say, yeah, of course, we made mistakes which have contributed to the legacy that we face today and my commitment is to deal with the legacy. Yeah. But I would have required, for example, Martin McGuinness to say something uh, about his 
membership of and support for the IRA. I would have wanted him perhaps to acknowledge that if you pick up a gun, you make a choice. If you detonate a bomb, you make a choice, rather than say, unionism left me no choice but to join the IRA. Now, he would no doubt go on to say the circumstances, the environment that unionism created, contributed to that. I wouldn't agree that that empowered him or gave him the right to pick up a gun, but at least if he would be giving something and we could disagree on something. And I could do all this without any danger to, to my belief that nobody needed to die to get where we are. And so we can go on. The SDLP might, might be able to say, well, perhaps we pressed too hard at Sunningdale. We pushed unionism too far. If we had banked everything bar the Council of Ireland, perhaps that would, you know, and so on and so on. I think if you got those acknowledgement statements up front, before the process revealed what it was that you were being blamed for, it has a different authenticity. It has a quality that works better. And that I think the public, the society, would realise and recognise and acknowledge themselves. Mike, I think your fan club has just turned up here beside us. <laughs> they, um, <laughs> not sure of the fan club, but um, oh, see, they're out for a good day. Let, that, shall we say and, that? And why not? Listen, before we finish, Mike... Do you want to move across? No, no, we're, we're oh, really right, finishing. Okay. Before we finish, we always um, ask everybody if you could invite three people, either alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? Oh, my goodness. Who would they be and why? Three people... Maybe sort of pre-warned you yes, with this question. <laughs> I, no, I'm thinking because I'm, I'm sure I would like to ask a sportsman or two. I'm not sure if I'd want a rugby player or a, or a footballer or yeah. an athlete. Um, so no, it's not the sort of thing I think about no, an of awful course, lot. And you don't I suppose go back they, pondering this. Yeah, I don't know, maybe someone like George Washington might be might be a very, very interesting character okay. to have. From well, the, we won't hold you to these, yeah. like, but George Washington, okay. Who uh-huh. else? Um, perhaps, perhaps Pele. Ah, very good. Yes. Um, to get his real views on on George Best, and then we must we must have a female. And who would we have? Glenn, Glenn Bradley last week said Charlene Theron. He would like her there. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think perhaps Virginia Woolf. Who? Virginia Woolf. Oh yes, the writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, Mike, you have been an absolute gentleman today. Um, thank you for being so candid, open and honest in all your answers. It's always uh, a pleasure talking to you. And I hope, uh, or sorry, I wish you well in your talks. Thank you very much. And I hope we'll speak again soon. Well, don't you be walking off and leaving me with all these ladies out to lunch. I, I might want an escort out of this building. Linda could have something to say. <laughs> thank you all very much for listening, folks. And if you like our podcast, a wee like and a retweet would be very much appreciated. Stay tuned for our next. Bye-bye.